Welcome to the new world, deepening conversations in a time of change. My name is Jelle van Baardewijk, and today my guest is from the United States, Paul van der Kleij. It's good to be here. Thank you, Paul, for coming over here. It's my pleasure. You're on a trip in the Netherlands, actually it's, in Europe. Huh? Yeah, it's my first time to the Netherlands. Oh. Uh, I grew up in Christian Reformed Church in the United States. Mm. So heard about the Netherlands all my life. Never had a chance to be here. Well, nice that you are here. Just one remark on language, because the, <clears throat> the viewers of our channel know uh, my opinion, my political opinion about the importance of Dutch as a language to uh, have conversations in, to correspondent in. Um, because we see a, a rather dominant power from the US and the UK mm -hmm. taking over a language, uh, a certain kind of Americanization of mm -hmm. our institutions. And um, that's also why I want to remark that uh, I and I hope many with me, are, we are of course enthusiastic about English, but not about its dominance. That, that's a <laughs> subtle difference. But in the Netherlands, unfortunately, it's also a fierce difference. I can believe so, it. so we need to defend, I think, uh, trying to have conversations on a high level, academic level, literature level in, in our own language. And at the same time, of course, uh, stay international in orientation. But maybe uh, you hearing this, I think for the first time, uh, can elaborate a little bit about, uh, well, you as a theologian, uh, you of course read uh, scripture. So um, have, you, have you also studied uh, Latin, Greek, maybe German to understand uh, Calvin or Luther? What, what's your idea of this idea of be, being able to read and speak more languages? Uh, I wouldn't identify myself as a theologian as much as a pastor. Uh, part of my theological education was, um, was Greek and Hebrew for biblical studies. I'm, uh, my grandfather could have conversed on all of this in Frisian or Dutch quite easily. Um, your grandfather wasn't? My grandfather and my father were both um, Dutch Calvinist pastors. Dutch Calvinist pastors Christian in the United States. In the United States, yeah. Oh, okay. The Christian Reformed Church in the United States has been very self-consciously Dutch most of its time, and over the last number of decades, trying to figure out how to how what to do with our cultural heritage with respect to our American culture. It's been a dominant conversation in the Christian Reformed Church in the United States. That's astonishing. So your grandfather read Abraham Kuyper. My, the last books my grandmother would allow my grandfather to have in their tiny little retirement place was Abram Kuyper and Herman Bovink in Dutch. <laughs> he died with those books next to his bed. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's very serious in the Christian Reformed Church in the United States still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something has something to do with uh, cultivating standing in a tradition. Yes, yes. The, the Christian Reformed Church in many ways, in the 1970s, um, one of the preeminent pastors put an, put an article in the banner, the, um, the Christian Reform publication, about it's time to burn the wooden shoes. That's as late as the 1970s. And the specific church I grew up in was mostly a church, a Dutch Calvinist church in an African-American congregation. And so my upbringing was very much Christian day school and African-American in the context of the civil rights movement. And so that was really the, the environment in which I grew up in, trying to figure out what's, what do we get from Kuiper, Bavink, our Dutch heritage that we can bring as something distinctively valuable to 
this American context, mm -hmm. and in this case to the African American context. Yeah, very interesting. So you mentioned the the, the wooden shoes, huh? the yeah. the klompen, yeah. and it's one of the my irritations also about Dutch culture that people think that folklore is the same as uh, culture. Yes. Right? Yes. This is of course very much more, especially yeah. I would say language. Yes. Uh, to close off that topic and uh, to get to the next one, maybe you can tell me a little bit about your impressions now that you've been traveling through the Netherlands about the, the differences in religious experiences in this day and age between um, people in the United States and here. Maybe in general, so maybe some sketches about the, 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 the different experiences of uh, spirituality, religion, and more specific, so how people go to church, especially in the Reformed Church, uh, would interest me to hear a little bit about that. Is it the same? Because well, so I grew up amongst. There were the there were the way my parents came in the 1890s. My great grandparents, um, but there was also a wave of immigrants after the Second World War into the Christian Reformed Church, and so I grew up listening to immigrants from the Netherlands from the 1950s lament the changes in the Netherlands, what happened to churches and spirituality, um, and so that was sort of the background. And then when I got here, I was I was quite surprised where um, the religion, Christianity, and even Christianity here is built into the buildings and the walls and the pavement of the country, even though secularism is also quite evident. It, it's a remarkable it's a remarkable juxtaposition that I see here. Um, I've because I grew up partially in a Dutch Calvinist immigrant, but partially in an African American, all within an American context. I've always been rather sensitive to culture, and I find the um, I, I find a thesis of the the implicit Christianity within secularization compelling when I get here, mm. because on one hand it's quite evident that this is a this is a multicultural context here, especially in the urban Netherlands, yet we've been doing a lot of driving in the countryside. And what, what I see here is these spires of historical churches dominating the landscape, with the exception perhaps of these giant um, electrifying windmills. But um, so it's, I'm, I've been fascinated by the dance of religion, implicit religion that I see going on in your culture here. Now, city still in a, in a way organized around the church huh? yes around churches so the, yes. being being the spiritual center but at the same time empty yes uh, often holding a fitness center or a, I, I don't know some place yes. where you can maybe look at the art the neighbor made but and sometimes of course more established churches uh, they found a new spiritual purpose but but and, and but what the, is, but and I think what is yes yeah well most are empty That's yes what I wanted to say exactly. So that, yeah. So, and in my, um, I perceive the United States as a as a pretty religious country, huh? and that's also what the stats say. But um, is this, is this something that you would also say that, that that the United States are more deeply still Christian, whereas the Dutch are maybe well, we are we we have culturalized Christianity. It's yes. in our buildings. It's in our institutions. Right. That's true. But at at the same time, it's 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 gone. Very, very little left. It's perhaps in the people in North America, because otherwise the stones would have to cry out, which is what you have here in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. Because when I walk through this, I've never been to Leiden. When I walk through this town, in a sense, the stones are speaking to me 
of this long, rich tradition, which in some ways is built so deeply into, into the culture that it's no longer seen. And, and so then you have the question, how loudly can the stones still speak? And can we hear what the stones have to say? Whereas in North America, uh, one of the things that many have noticed in terms of immigration to North America, even, even religious traditions that weren't fundamentally congregational, when they got to North America, congregationalized because I think spirituality in people um, has to be instantiated at some level. And so perhaps in this level, because there's so much instantiation in the buildings, in the culture, in that which doesn't, that doesn't appear to us to be explicitly religious, the buildings carry the weight, whereas in a new world like North America, the people have to carry the weight and the congregations have to carry the weight. So it's, it's just some observations watching the two cultures. Yeah. It's a very interesting difference. Would you say that uh, I had brought Dreyer here and yes. he's, 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 uh, he, he evocated, so he, when I talked to him, I had the experience of a deep personal experience of religion. Yes. Do you know what I mean when I say yes, that? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and it also uh, made me hesitate a bit, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, as a uh, standing in the Protestant tradition, like, whoa, this is really in, uh, uh, somebody who's talking about angels, experiencing angels. Yes. Not that I cannot experience these things, but I did have this hesitation. I thought maybe this is also an important difference between the European tradition of Christianity and the Americans. As soon as you speak to uh, American Christians, that you have the idea that they, that they embody this so personal, so deeply. Yes. And, uh, the, is this an observation that you share, and can you maybe elaborate a bit on it? I think Rod Dreher is a terrific example of a reaction to secularism. Um, a, a friend of mine who teaches at the University of Toronto, John Verveke, has entitled it A Meaning Crisis, where um, the, the stone speaking is insufficient for many of these people to... Um, to, to find a practice and a language of meaning that is sufficient to give them strength and energy to address the kinds of suffering that, that is normal in, in human living. And so Rod Dreher, he's in some ways, his blog is rather alarmist. I've been reading his blog for a number of years. I've met him once. I've done some conversations with him once. And um, I'm very, I have a great deal of appreciation and respect for Rod. But he almost embodies what I see as the next generation of embodied religious people in a post-Christian world. Hmm. And, and some, will, some like Rod will go deep into ancient traditions like Orthodoxy, one of the oldest traditions in Christianity. Um, others, we were speaking with my, our, my friend Job, who was here in the Netherlands, will, will also embody in themselves a a complex mixture of traditions. One of my theses is that I think we are nearing the end. The Protestant Reformation is a protest. It's right there in the word. I think we're nearing the end of the protest and the Christianity we're going to see coming after it is, is going to attempt to finally absorb the protest into the other traditions and we'll see where that goes. Uh, yeah, th that makes me think of a, th another question that I would like to ask you that I've ha been having about Christianity uh, quite a time. Is it uh, not 
true that Christianity maybe uh, had, has been interested too much in emancipation, in setting people free, in helping, uh, in helping people to emancipate from the conditions they live in, instead of cultivating. And I need to watch out uh, for my words here, but because you are an American, you have different uh, um, flavor with these words. But mm -hmm. let's call it the conservation of tradition mm -hmm. and also the inherent spirituality of these traditions. Is it not true that Christianity maybe also uh, secularized itself or, or made a big risk by focusing so much on this leftish agenda of wanting to help people instead of uh, establishing itself and, and, uh, and also spiritualizing, I would say, regular bourgeois life? Huh? I, th I think that's right. Um, I think part of Christianity, um, all of the elements of our contemporary Western civilization come out of Christianity. And so you very much have that liberational aspect. And what you find in Christ is both incredible liberation, but also incredible discipline. The, the, the same man who, who tells the woman um, caught in adultery, um, you know, I don't condemn you either, let he who is without, without sin throw the first stone, is the same one who preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon of incredible restraint and self-discipline. And I, I think you're right. I think over long periods of time, we're trying to work out these tensions of liberation versus discipline, because and, and sort of always the two sides of freedom. There's always freedom from and freedom to. I am, I am free to play the piano, but it's a different kind of freedom to be able to play the piano well. And I think we're right now, we've gotten sort of to the edge of sort of a progressive liberationism, and we're realizing that to just go and plunk on the keys doesn't necessarily make music, and the power is, as many have known, to be, a, to be a great pianist, you must first master the basics, yeah. and then you can have another level of freedom. Yeah, and let's connect it a little bit to the, the previous uh, line of uh, conversation that we had about language and also maybe the inarticulacy uh, of many people, including myself, uh, being, uh, I, I would say, spiritually attuned or being able to uh, look religious to the world and to yourself, but at the same time being deaf or not tone deaf, but maybe not so open anymore to, to Christian rituals. Huh? So yes. there, there is a communication gap here. Yes. Um, so how can you, to put it uh, in different words, cultivate your own symbolic understanding with Christianity for, for a deeper uh, experience of, uh, of life? Huh? So maybe, maybe you can go into that, maybe with examples like prayer or uh, other rituals that, you, that, that the tradition has, but connecting it also with the um, opening of, the, of, of life, huh? because becoming more sensitive, huh? finding subtler languages, right. as, as uh, right. the, the famous philosopher Charles Taylor uh, also uh, calls this, this problem. Huh? So, and he actually says, in Christianity, there is actually a lack of subtler languages. So mm -hmm. the problem mm -hmm. of literalism, the problem of Protestants only looking uh, mm -hmm. um, rather scientific instead of embodied. But, but I'm trying to connect this. We're, we're in a different scheme, I think, mm -hmm. uh, 20 years after 
source of the self, or maybe even 40 years after. I don't, I don't remember. This is an old book, huh? Yeah. But um, but uh, talking to people that are religious, that that are religious searchers, and not not so much Protestant, but religious searchers. How would you maybe invite us to 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 find this subtlety? My Frisian grandfather, every time we sat down for a meal, would pray the same prayer. He got that prayer from his father, who got that prayer from his father. In the 60s and 70s, we stopped praying the prayers of our fathers and grandfathers, prayers that gave us identity, and we now prayed spontaneous prayers, what is on my heart now. And that was a liberation. There, I think, 20, 30, 40 years into that, there was a sense of this liberationism can become trite, empty, and without much substance. And what I see happening now in the new converts, someone like Rod Dreher, someone like my friend Job, is they, are, someone, they will come to me and they say, how should I pray? Well, Jesus knew how to give an answer because every master in that culture would teach his disciples his prayer. And you always knew someone because you would listen to their prayer. And so 50 years ago, if you would listen to my grandfather pray and you knew the prayers of Friesland and the Netherlands and Dutch immigrants to the New World, you would know exactly where he came from. Now we live in this wash of spontaneity. And so what is happening to Christians? They're saying, I want a prayer book. People who were catechized in the 60s, 70s, 80s said, we burned the prayer books. Oh, but I need one. Because that prayer book now connects me to Augustine. And maybe I want a prayer book that connects me to my ancestors hmm. here in the Netherlands. And, and, and we talked a little bit before the show about meditation, which is in a sense a quieting and a calming um, and to, to get together, I often talk about God number one and God number two. God number one is, is, is the God built into the system. It's the God of the architecture. It's the God of the context. God number two is the personal God, the speaking God, the living God, the acting God. Uh, meditation, in that sense, quiets the mind to become aware of, um, of, the, of the presence of God that's been built into, as Isaiah said, the whole earth is full of his glory. But then there is the part of God that is the speaking God, that is the disrupting God. And so in a sense, in meditation, we, we begin to become aware of the God that has been building this land from the ground up for hundreds of years. But there's no voice because we've quieted our voice. And then at some point, the God that is personal, the God that acts and creates and destroys well, then with prayer, how do we relate to this God? What do we say? And so suddenly people, well, maybe I should look to what people have been saying to this God for a thousand years, and then maybe I should speak. And only, of course, half of prayer is speaking. The other half of prayer is listening. And will that God speak to me? And what will he say? And so I, I find this in, again, as a pastor, I've been, I've been watching these changes, and so even though I have a lot of talk on my YouTube channel, what I really use my channel for is to get the attentions of others who are undergoing these changes now in post-Christianity and to sit down with them and, and to listen to them and say, 
what are you doing? Are you praying? And I'm discovering that this is what's happening. Rod, um, Job, many others. Jordan Peterson. You've been commenting on Jordan Peterson. And one of the things that you didn't notice, but but I did like very much, or maybe you did notice, but you don't talk about it, is that what you do notice is that he he, he creates a lot of... um, Attention for the Bible in the yes. first place. So, uh, and uh, so there's a revival of Christianity, perhaps even. Uh, yes. Your, your suggestion. Yes. Um, due to Peterson. Yes. One of the interesting differences, or between him and the 60, 70 uh, pastors, is exactly this focus on order. Yes. On, on get you get get your room in order, but but also in a metaphysical sense, for him always connecting to uh, Egyptian gods, like Osiris. Uh, trying to cultivate life, so that's where his main attention is. Huh? Yes, and not so much on suffering and um, uh, attention for other people. Not so much on the socialization of religion. It's interesting difference huh? that he attracts so much listeners by focusing on this personal development aspect of the Bible. I, I think it's. I think it's a similar. I think it's analogous to what we were speaking about. We have been telling a generation, you can do anything. And we don't realize what a burden that is. When, in fact, in a context of political stability and economic affluence, they can do a lot of things. My my grandparents, they could do one thing, what their father did. You can do anything. Well, what a burden because there are so many things. Well, what suddenly you have the burden and the weight of should. Is there a should? You can do anything. Oh, okay. But what should no. I do? And now suddenly we have the weight of that of the normative of the ought. No. And and so Peterson I think tries to bring in and says there is a there is a normative order to the world. And you should clean up your room. You should be the kind of person that when a crisis hits your family, they look to you and you are reliable. And this is especially for a generation of of young men who in some ways have been told, you should be quiet. Okay. What do I do next? And and so the, the, the meme is that you have a generation of young men who are deriving meaning from video games. They're living in their parents' basement, watching pornography covered in Cheetos dust. And Jordan Peterson, in a sense, says, you were made for a lot more. And the only <laughs> way you're going to do that oh. is you should turn off the computer game. You sh- probably should turn off the YouTube. And you should get a job in the real world. And you should become the kind of person... Oh that the rest of your val- your family wow. can value. Now, do you think, Paul, that there is a tradition in the way he communicates all these odds? Because I was uh, rereading uh, Max Weber's Protestantische Ethik und der Geist des Kapitalismus, and it actually it, it, it reconstructs a few commentators, American commentators on... Uh, uh, on, on the biblical tradition, let's, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, theologians, mm-hmm. um, theologians, preachers. And one of the things that I remarked was that uh, all those people that uh, that he read and they, that he writes about, they tend to communicate also in these commands. Yes. So 
one, two, three, four, five, for instance, yes. literally. Yes. And it was one of the things that surprised me so much when reading Peterson that he actually communicates in this rules yes. uh, discourse. Yes. So can you maybe tell me a little bit about that? That 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 also is actually it's not the the, the self development agenda. Yes, he, he also has. I, I mean, he's a psychiatrist. Yes. He, he does a lot of psychology. He has been a professor in psychology and so forth. Everybody knows. But there is also a deep theologian tradition of in this way of reaching out to people. Yes. Communicating in rules. Yes. You have ten commandments. Why? The Bible is not a book of rules. I tell people all that the time. There are rules in it. Rules are very helpful. Rules take a complex, chaotic world and says, you shall not kill. And tell the truth, um, or at least don't lie. If you can't get all the way up to the truth, which is a difficult thing, at least don't lie. And so to, to bring a complex world down to something that someone can put in their pocket is powerful. And I, it's, of course, Max Weber. It's interesting because Peterson, in many ways, I think, sort of embodies this generation that is, he, his wife now is Roman Catholic, his daughter is flirting with evangelicalism, uh, one of his friends, Jonathan Peugeot, is Orthodox, and Peter is, Peterson is seeing the symbolism and the pageantry of the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, but he's deeply Protestant in that. Mm. Here's the rule. You know, and, and he gets this way as a, as a clinical psychologist dealing with patients. If you're if you're working with someone who has no mapping of order in their life, perhaps because they were raised in a home of chaos, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. So perhaps take off your shoes when you come in the house. Yeah. There's our first rule. Yeah. I want to unpack this idea of morality a little bit more, especially because so many people are quite rigid these days about yeah. their ideas of the world. Uh, yeah. we, know, uh, we know examples from the conservative side, but especially also from the leftist wokies. Yes. Uh, rigid in the sense of taking things literal and don't not able anymore to make concessions. Don't take the responsibility for conversations, but the, the, suggesting that things are um, unruled, are in rules and that they cannot be changed. Yes. Uh, yeah. We see this in politics. Um, uh, for instance, the 2030 agenda for sustainability, I don't know if you know it, but that's in, in Europe that, that is presented as something, well, that is a fact. But it's not a fact, it's something that we discussed. Eh? So, mm -hmm. And it's a lot, it, you see that a lot with uh, moral ideals, that mm -hmm. they, um, they are read in a rather absolute sense. Now, um, also Max Weber relates this actually to the religious interpretation of morality. Eh? Mm -hmm. But maybe you can tell me a little bit more about how you, um, w w what advice you can give standing in the tradition of the Bible about um, what morality is in general and what the danger of taking things too literal and, uh, and, and uh, the danger of rules that uh, become burdens in itself because you need to do the rules but they, 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 they that's also of course a 60s morality yes. that says well the rules they uh, encapsulate you that much that they don't set you free anymore eh? right. so there here here's the balance and we need a little bit of this flexibility but the other hand, of course, the other, uh, and then I uh, will end my question or end with a question. The other side of the flip coin is, of course, the, the people that are really, the, the, let's say, the libertarians or the people that really say, I just want to live a la Milton Friedman the way I want to. And uh, I don't, what, what's the message of morality? I mean, I don't, I do, don't do anything with morality. I just live my life. Huh? Yeah. So on the one hand, we have this rigid 
uh, moralists. And the other hand, we have people that say, well, morality, I, uh, we don't live in the 50s anymore. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing uh, of the current schema thing, uh, to live between these two positions. They're both institutionalized. We have many companies that think, a la Milton Friedman, morality, I mean, do that at home. And at the same time, we have many newspaper op-end writers who think it should be like this. Yeah. There's no discussion. Yeah. So maybe you can explore this field a bit from the biblical perspective. What does, it, what does it teach us? What does it make, in what sense can it make us more human or can it help us to understand this? Rob Henderson, um, who's, who's in the American context, he's a graduate student right now, he coined the term luxury beliefs. If you, um, if for example, because you, you grew up in it, look, let's look for example at someone like Barack Obama. Barack Obama um, is, is in, in some ways, was a, um, someone offering liberty, but lived a Puritan lifestyle. Did, whether, were there any sex scandals with Barack Obama? No. <laughs> was Barack Obama's financial house in order? Was it a billionaire? No, but had plenty of money. Was he raising his children well? Yes. Barack Obama can afford luxury beliefs. Liberty for others, um, discipline at home. And I think we've had a number of generations of that. In, in, a biblical, in, a, in a biblical frame, there is always, and Peterson talks about, there's always this tension between chaos and order. In the, the biblical story starts, starts out in the world is, is tohu avohu. Um, and, and suddenly God speaks order into the chaos. So we have light and darkness. We have heaven and earth. We have sea and dry land. And it's in the middle of all these dualities that suddenly let the earth bring forth life. Let the seas bring forth life. And, and so you get the sense that just like, let's say, the electrician, Someone tells you right away, if you're going to work with electrical, turn off the breaker, um, be very careful because the electricity can kill you. Then you watch, a, a, you watch an expert electrician and you say, no, you should turn off the breaker. And the expert electrician says, I'll take care of it because he's the master. And so there's, there's liberty, and, but liberty is dependent upon, again, um, you can play any key of the piano you want, but if you're going to make music, that's going to require probably not only a life of discipline, but a lineage of discipline that goes on multi-generation because there are not infinite number of ways to play the piano. And there are not infinite number of ways to learn the piano. All of these constraints are built in. And actually, again, coming to the Netherlands, I think part of the power of your country and your culture is constraint. You have a small country, you have a lot of water, we, we visited the Delta Works, mm -hmm. and you know the, the experience of inundation gave this country a discipline. Mm. And now that discipline can be marshaled towards liberation or towards order. And in order to do that, even as a small population, there's going to be negotiation. Mm -hmm. And... And I'm, I'm amazed at your country, at its discipline, at its, at its organization, because of all of the constraints. So what these constraints do is say to the libertarian, yeah, you can play the piano any way you want. But if you're going to actually play something that hushes a crowd, oh, that will require order, discipline, wow. and not just 
a life of discipline, but a lineage mm -hmm. of mastery. And I think in many ways, we are such short-lived creatures. We are born into this world. We have riches that we possess that we know nothing of because they, again, just like the riches I see here in Leiden, it's just built into the stones and mm -hmm. you're just the heir of it. And, um, and I think now at the end of a liberationist phase, the danger, of course, is that in recognition of order, we swing all the way into the authoritarian, which kills it either. So too much liberty doesn't work. Too much order or authoritarian doesn't work. It's always this mm -hmm. estuary in the middle that allows the right dynamic. But it's chaotic. It's scary. But that seems to be the normative yeah. fashion of the world. Can you reflect a bit on the same topic, but then on a more interpersonal level, uh, resilience, or to put it in another word, uh, tolerance for difference, and um, uh, the, 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 in a way we are a very, but also a very intolerant world. Huh? So everything, for instance, this day and age need to be uh, uh, confirm um, the rules of diversity so you always need a uh, man and a woman uh, b b people of color need to be included on television this all good arguments for this new diversity regime let that be clear but it it has also become intolerant so yes. you need you need to be working in this discourse otherwise yes. you risk being cancelled yes. um, so how do you also on a personal level or on work level how what are sources to remain resilient to remain um, flexible to have an eye on the rule, uh, but at the same time um, being able to make exceptions, to create things. And, and do you maybe have a story from the Bible or some uh, that, that, that relates to this topic? Because, uh, because I'm struggling with it myself. Now, yeah. how, can, how can you conceptualize this capacity, this moral capacity to remain uh, open, open-minded, open-hearted, yes. and at the same time strict, focused, and knowing what you want to reach, knowing that you cannot reach everything. Yes. I thought the, the word resilience yes. fits here, fits yes. in here. So, I, th I think you're asking the question of Paul of Tarsus in the New Testament. Hmm. Here you have the Jews, and then you have Jesus, and Paul goes and says, Gentiles may now be included in the promises of the God to the Hebrews. Well, what does that mean in a Greco-Roman culture? So right now I'm beginning to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, can you go to a pagan temple? Yes or no? The meat in the market has been sacrificed to idols. Can you eat that? Yes or no? I think it has everything to do with the question that you talked about in terms of the Dutch language. On one hand, I've seen few countries in some ways, the history of the Dutch is, I think in some ways the Dutch are some of the first successful globalists. After the Colombian Exchange, you know, the East India Company. The, the Dutch practically invented capitalism without knowing they were doing it. And they popularized it. Now the English came and said, oh, we'll take that. And, and that's, been the, that's been, in a sense, the, um, you know, the, the sad story of the Dutch is because when they have a good idea, others, others take from it. And the Dutch, Dutch try and claw it back. And so on you go. But Okay, so you have this language, and this language is a tradition. And, and even, even the Dutch language, as I've listened to my friends, is in fact itself a collection of how many other little dialects. Oh. 
all of which are there. So on one hand, how do you maintain the tradition? And probably the way you're going to do it is when you have a child, because it goes all the way down to the individual, when you're raising the child, well, he's going to learn English at school, so we're going to speak Dutch at home. And so when the when my ancestors, whether they were the Jews from my father's side or the Frisians from my mother's side, when they came to North America, they spoke Dutch at church. They spoke English in the marketplace. Now, over time, they had to negotiate that. But it's, it's all the same question of how can you, it's what, 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 needs, what needs to be sacred and holy and what is indifferent. And I think the entire conversation of Christianity as it left the Jewish context and went out into the Roman world is all of that question of finding a way of differentiating the holy from the negotiable. Mm. And it's a constant conversation throughout the history of the church. Mm. And you see it in the Protestant Reformation. And I think, mm. again, we're nearing the end of the, the Reformation period, the, the, net, the end of the protest, where I go to one church and it's bare. I go to the next church and saints are looking down. What do you do with those statues? Mm. Are those statues holy? Or are those statues embody a holiness and on and on and on? Religion, religion has been the long conversation of the differentiation mm. of what is holy, what must be kept, because if it's lost, all is lost. That's the definition of the holy, and then the negotiable. Mm. And so, if I find this a very, very, very interesting pair of words: the holy and the profane. Yeah. The, the holy and the periphery, or the, un, the not so the negotiable. Yes. You called it the negotiable. Yes. And I was thinking while you were saying this, how a lot of people uh, experience stress uh, because they find it difficult to decide what is holy for them. And also because of what you sketched earlier on in this conversation, you can do everything you want to, uh, especially if you're talented, the whole world is open for you, especially if you're Dutch. <laughs> yeah, because we have this social welfare state and we do have a lot of positive freedom to use the term, uh, the Berlian term. So maybe you have some advice or reflection on that. So because I think that a lot of people, a lot of things in this world are actually considered to be holy, but perhaps they're not. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yes. It, 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 the, instead of that we lost the experience of holiness. Yes. Uh, we we let it we we let it flood through the whole world. We've we've made a lot of the things in in life very very important. Yes, is well, that is that, and it's all the, the 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 holiness of the normal world. It's also uh, I don't know if you know these uh, parts of the work of uh, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, but he speaks of uh, the affirmation of ordinary life, mm -hmm. which is a spiritual development, mm -hmm. which he uh, sees back in Dutch painters, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, Pieter van Hoog or uh, Johannes Vermeer, and to a certain extent, but not so much Rembrandt. And what basically comes down to, if you look at the Italian big uh, painters and sculptures, they it's all about heroes. For instance, yes. David, uh, Michelangelo's David, yes. the big statue. Um, and then um, the Dutch painters become uh, start to uh, paint normal, regular scenes, but in a layer of holiness. Yes. Of course, also full of cliches, uh, the maiden, uh, the girl, the father that enters the house and so forth. So it's, it's, it's not, it's super realistic in the sense that it tries to communicate a certain ideal as well, eh? namely 
ordinary life, as Charles Taylor calls it. But this is all, that's also, of course, the difficulty that ordinary normal life has become so holy that it's, I mean, how do you orient yourself in, uh, in life? And then the difference between the 17th century and nowadays is, of course, that you have a lot more input. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the, that's the tension between, in many ways, the Greek and the Hebrew. Because with the Greeks, the god is up here, daily life is down there, economics is dirty. In the Hebrew, the story begins with the God of the Bible using hands to create a man out of the clay, and the man's first jar, job is gardening. It's ordinary life. And so you see, this, you see this conversation beginning already in the tension between those two things. And of course, in the Renaissance, you, you go back to, oh, we're uncovering these statues that we threw away in the, in the great Christian revolution, and look at the artistry of Latin, look at the artistry in stone, let's recapture that. But yet, at the same time, oh, but look at the, look at the beauty in working the earth. Look at the beauty. I, um, my grandfather in his church once had a Dutch dairyman ask him, um, will there be calves in heaven? My grandfather said, why? Because he said, I know nothing more beautiful than the eyes of the calf after it's born looking at me. And so there's the, there's the beauty in the old. And so for, for, that, for that farmer, the sacred, you know, he saw that transcendental of beauty in the eyes of a newborn calf. Mm. And, and of course, the calf's born every day. But suddenly that, that, that common moment becomes a holy moment. Um, whereas he would probably find David, Michelangelo's David, not anywhere near as beautiful as the eyes of a newborn calf. Mm. And, and so part of, the reason, part of the reason I think religion isn't going away because it's because our, it's our oldest conversation of this question, what is sacred? And of course, right now, a lot of the contemporary conversations are about identity, but an identity conversation is a conversation about the sacred. But the... the- is there also something as a religious sense, an anthropological constitute in, in human beings that allows us to be religious? How, how would you, or is it only a conversation? No. I mean, it, if, it's, it's, if it's only a conversation, I mean, you could also say it's like, it's a form of culture. Yeah. Huh? But one of, one of my favorite, one of, the, one of the great understandings of classical history at this point is the question, were the Greeks religious? We look back at the Greeks and say, oh, religious? Temples, gods, statues. They didn't think they were religious. Someone looks, an alien comes and looks at our culture and say, are we religious? I worship the smartphone. I give it all my attention. Hours of my day I spend to the screen. I hold my God in my pocket. So the religious, this term developed out of secularization. Suddenly we went to a place like India and said, Oh, they're religious. No, we're just living. Oh, that's Hinduism that you're doing. Well, it never had a name before. Mm. And and that's why, again, what what I find so striking coming here is on one hand, I I, I almost feel like Paul coming to Athens, looking around the Netherlands and say, I can see you're a very religious people. And people would say, no, we, we stopped all that. I don't know, then why didn't you take down the churches? Well, we, we replaced what's inside the church with something else. Oh, well, your religion has continued on. So in, um, in a little town, oh, I can't remember all these Dutch names, a little town that still has its walls, 
um, we went in. There's a beautiful church facade, and oh, it's a it's a it's a Christian Reformed church. It was in the day, and oh, it's open. We walk in, and it was a fashion store. And the owner comes and says, "We're not open yet." <laughs> and uh, oh, oh, okay. Um, oh, so what is exactly our religion? What is a religion? And well, it's that which makes life work at the most level, at the deepest level, and determines what is sacred. And, and humanity is, we're, we're the most amazing creatures on this world because unlike every other creature, what is sacred is really variable for us. Whereas I always tell my dogs that their God is their belly because they, 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 they will, anyone who feeds them will be their master. Yeah. Well, at the same time, there are religious experiences that include, that include animals and the, and the, and the earth and uh, yeah. Well, that farmer's religious experience was oh. the birth of every newborn calf. Yeah, and he he'd probably go and sleep in church, but he's never going to miss the birthing of the calf because suddenly he's confronted with the beauty of the glory of God right there through a calf. Now he would have he would have very much said he was a Dutch Calvinist, but did he worship a calf? <laughs> <laughs> It's astonishing how you speak about the Netherlands as a country with such evident religion in its buildings, in the way people communicate with you. And I think I forgot about that. And it's nice to remember that it's, it's, it's a scientific view of things that you look and say, hey, that's religion. You categorize things. Well, it's, and so it's actually a secular scientific way of grasping reality, whereas you're bracketing things. So Job, when we were driving through, said something like, you know, have you seen, have you seen, I don't remember how he said, basically the heart of Rotterdam. Well, it's a joke. Why? He says that to Germans because, of course, it was destroyed in the war. Well, the heart of Rotterdam was holy. Well, why was it holy? Well, why is this little bit of Leiden holy? Why, why is there a statue to, um, to Rembrandt? Why is he holy? Well, well, beauty shines through him. And, you know, I think, an, I think a Greek, if you would time travel a Greek to Leiden, say, oh, this is, this is oh, Rembrandt is your god. Well, not exactly, we would say, but there's a statue to him. Oh. And people come from all over the world just to see where he was born. Oh. Paul, different kind of question. We talked about uh, the importance of Christianity for, for civilization, especially for Western civilization. And this is something that a lot of priests, of course, uh, say, and uh, which you find back in a lot of books. Uh, uh, basically, the argument, yeah, what would we be without the focus on individuals uh, by Luther in this world? Uh? Without Luther, we probably didn't have emancipation, probably not even feminism, because he argues that everyone should read the Bible, including women. So, uh, so in, in a nutshell, that's the type of argument that says, isn't modernity also in existence in the first place because we previously, as a condition, were Christian? Uh, but now uh, I wanted to turn the argument around. Isn't it so that the Christian isn't... What, what elements in Christianity are maybe integrated into Christianity, but maybe older, maybe from old times. What, in what sense is Christianity nourishing older elements of what is holiness? How do you embrace life in its holiness? What, what are typical examples that you could argue for? Well, that 
it, it's, it's part of the human condition. It's something yeah. that we shared, that we took from the Greek, from the Jews, from yeah. the uh, f from yeah. biology. Yeah. In, instead of overestimating what Christianity did for civilization, maybe what did what Christian tradition did, in a sense, protect and conserve something that is essential to human life, but not in essence Christian itself. Yeah, it, it's. Christianity is a remarkable, remarkable religion, partly because if you look at, sometimes they make these maps of the center of gravity of Christianity. And unlike Islam, which still is based very much in, in one place, and Buddhism in one place, and Hinduism in one place, and Judaism in one place, Christianity moves around the world. And, and the very remarkable thing is that, you know, for example, Christianity didn't take off in China until the missionaries were kicked out. One of my favorite missiologists was a, a missionary in Asia, and um, he, had a, he had a group of churches that he had to visit. And he began to notice the churches that were further away and harder for him to get to were doing better than the churches he was visiting regularly. And he began to wonder, why I'm supposed to be the expert here, giving them Christianity. Why are my churches doing poorly and the churches with less of me doing better? And we've seen this in Africa and, and in Asia, that Christianity is a strange thing that sort of moves into a culture and, and subtly transforms things. Chinese Christians, I think, 100 years from now, if in fact Christianity continues to grow as it has been, China might become the preeminent Christian nation, and already Africans are sending missionaries to Europe. It's a remarkably cultural adept religion, which makes it very difficult to exactly figure out what it is. And, and, and part of that seems to be around the very strange person who is Jesus Christ. Because, again, as we spoke about before, he's remarkably um, liberational in the woman comes into the party and um, weeps cleaning his feet with her tears, wiping her tears with her hair by letting down her hair. And all the Pharisees look around and say, if he knew what kind of woman, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let him near her because she is unholy because she sleeps with Romans and he is holy because he's supposed to be a teacher. And he completely upends that whole thing. Yet he is the one who says in the Sermon on the Mount that anyone who lusts with their eyes is guilty of adultery. And it's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Are you a liberationist or are you a Puritan? And, and, and Jesus seems to come into these cultures, and people read these stories, and the elements of their culture begin to get rearranged in ways that are in some ways identifiable, but in other ways dramatically diverse. And we've seen this throughout the history of Christianity. So, so the definition of which is, you know, as a pastor... I, I have a certain shape of Christianity that it's my tradition I try to instill and propagate in my people. But, but in the faith of, uh, uh, itself, um, we don't know what we're looking at here in the Netherlands. Is this a new version of Christianity? The people don't, many people don't seem to think so. And if you would call them a Christian, they might be offended. But yet something has gotten into the culture and in the mindset that is unmistakably connected to it. And it has the tensions like we talked about with the, the God of the Hebrews who gets his hands dirty versus the Greeks who, you know, anybody who gets their hands dirty is of lower class, sort of an implicit Gnosticism. So I, I don't know where all this is going, but 
G.K. Chesterton noted that Christianity has died many times, but its God seems to know the way out of the grave. And that tends to be what we see. So counting out Christianity is sort of a dangerous thing because it just keeps popping up. But yet I think the Apostle Paul, if he came today, might find a lot of the Christianity we have today unrecognizable. It doesn't look like what he was expecting. Mm. But there's Jesus. So it, it's a mystery. Mm. And, and yeah, go ahead. One final question. How, could, uh, how, how can we look at the transformations that God himself makes in the Bible? Because uh, Jesus himself, son of God, but also in a way God himself, um, but then there are different types of gods that we find in the, in the Old Testament, the God of Moses, but even suggestions that there are more gods, uh, an, a nice suggestion, I think, uh, that, that there, there, there's no one God, but at the same time there are uh, traditions interpreting the Bible, uh, not so much in the Bible itself, but uh, in the later books of the Bible, that it becomes more and more important that there is only one God. So um, uh, a, a more disciplined God, a more free, free setting God, but also more gods and one God. How do you look at this evolution itself? How can we make sense of this? And is this maybe also not say, saying something about religious experience? That it's not, it's, it's, it's difficult to say Christianity is the belief in Jesus. Because that's even within the Bible, that's a account, is an account of, of Christianity. Or am I now saying something that I... Uh, that, 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 that sounds like uh, um, a one-sided interpretation, although I think it's a many-sided, a multifaceted interpretation, because that, that's actually what you see when you read the Bible. So it's pluriform. So, so how, do you, how, do you make, how do you make sense of this? If you look at, say, Christine Hayes' introduction to the Old Testament from Yale, which is sort of a modern secularist approach to the Bible, you see the tensions in the scripture about, um, about many gods. Well, here's this one God that, that seems to be claiming preeminence over the gods. And, and the most remarkable thing happens, let's say, in the book of, of, of Ezekiel, when the God, of, the, God of, the God of our place shows up outside of Babylon and says, yeah, um, and a little bit later says, yeah, I destroyed, I, I commanded my own temple be destroyed. Anyone in the ancient world would stop and say, what kind of God allows his temple to be destroyed? It's exactly the same argument that, that Islam will sometimes say to Christianity, what kind of God will let his son be crucified? All of these tensions are already in the Bible, and, and what you see are the ancients are working through these arguments about, well, what do we mean by God? Is, is God the, the sum total of everything in the universe? What happens? There's this always, there's this divine passive, which means if it happens, God willed it. I mean, that's deeply in Calvinism. But yet at the same time, evil happens. And according to the story, that which is at the top of the hierarchy, the good, the true, and the beautiful certainly wouldn't want evil if we understand evil. So all of these conversations are there in the Bible. And I think this is, this is, what is, this is what is happening, analogous to the prayer of my Frisian grandfather, where, oh, I'm not going to pray that old prayer. Who knows what that prayer is? And then two, two three generations go by, and, and suddenly, hey, wait a minute. What, 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 what do we have here? 
And then what I find in the likes of many of the people I'm talking to now who didn't grow up with any Christianity, they begin reading this Bible, and even someone like Jordan Peterson talks about it for two, three hours, while you have empty churches and people flock to hear him, because he says, there's something in this book. Hmm. And he gives these little indications of, this, this is, it's deeply psychological. It's deeply philosophical. All of these conversations are there. What do we mean by gods? How can I actually have freedom to not only bang on the keys, but to play a beautiful sonata that the neighbors will stop? And it will take all of their attention and they'll listen to it because yeah. there's beauty there. All these conversations are in the Bible. It's just that, sort of like my grandfather's family prayer, I was just a young kid who couldn't appreciate what was happening, and perhaps my grandfather himself, this is the only way he knew how to pray. Mm. Uh, maybe ending with the start of this conversation and the story of Bible, of, of the, many, the many languages problem. In the, in the Bible, there's actually a very crit critical passage, you could say, about people speaking different languages eh, in, this, in this story. And I always wonder, what does it mean? Especially now that you know what my own intuition yeah, about yeah. this is name and it is related also to what you were saying namely the relation between pluriformity and uniformity yeah, um, yeah. and well, the rigidity of, of the, the literalness of uniformity yeah. but also the chaos of the potential chaos and fragmentization of pluriformity so maybe you can tell uh, tell uh, retell this story a little bit to us and and also reflect on, on what happens in language in the Bible and what does it tell us? Yeah. So, of course, Noah comes off the ark and he's fruitful and multiplies. It's an echo of the beginning of the story, and everyone says we want to settle in one place because we find that if we work together. We can accomplish great things. Oh, that sounds good. In fact, let's build a tower. Oh, that sounds good. Let's build a, one of the, let's build a tower up to the sky. I've, I've been noticing the churches here again. The old churches all have towers. One of the first things they would build is a tower and then a little room next to it. Completely opposite any Protestant church in America. You need a big tomb. The tower, that does nothing for you. No, a tower, a tower is a psychotechnology that Sam Harris doesn't know why, but draws your eyes to the sky. Well, what's going on when we do that? So they're building a tower and, well, this should be great. This is human beings marshalling, coordinating. And why would a good God say, oh, this is a mess. We've got to stop them from building such a tower. Why would a good God then confuse the languages? Well, it depends on what all of that organized human, human, human power accomplishes and to what end. Some of the, we live in the age of, we're probably living towards the end of the, the, the idolatry of the managerial. Oh, let's manage everything. The difficulty is you can't manage everything. And so I think part of why God confuses the languages is because we can't see everything and we can't know everything. And very quickly, we are prone to the authoritarian. And we've seen this throughout history again. So in, in a way it was God's criticism of man that of, of hubris. Yes. So yes. 
We, we, we want too much. Can you, can you really be God? What if someone would come to you and say, I will be your total slave. I will do whatever you think. At first you might think, oh, I don't have to, get, I don't have to wash the dishes. I don't have to get my own water. But then you begin to realize that this is a human being, not a slave. And so you say to this person, no, I want you to be free. I don't want to be free. I want to be your slave. No, you're not God. None of us are God. And so it's, and, and again, one, one of the long themes of the Bible, in fact, right from the beginning, we are not able to be God. We are not smart enough. We cannot manage enough. And the machines we make are only merely products of ourselves, even if they're more powerful. And so we ought to have a bit of humility. An interesting thing is that it's also one of the key messages in the Greek tragedies. Yes, huh? yes. Yeah. Humility, embrace humility, the tragedies of people becoming hubristic, yeah. wanting too much. Yeah. And you ask about other sources. Well, that, that I'm sure there are many other sources, similar, similar stories oh. in the ancient world, oh. like... Uh, human beings, human beings are very impressive, but sometimes the more impressive we get, the more deadly we get mm. because, you know, we, we looked at, for a while they thought the best way to manage the, the, the San Francisco Bay and these rivers in California, our dry country is to let's dam up the whole bay and keep all the fresh water here. Oh, but you need an estuary. No. You need the, the, the you need wetlands. Yeah. Well, we th th they're useless land. No, they're not useless yeah. at all. You just didn't know their use. Yeah. It's Chesterton's fence. If you see a fence in the middle of a field, you say, a fence is in the way. Yeah. Uh, you, maybe you should ask yourself. Someone went through the effort to put that fence up. You all decided that these beautiful old buildings and these churches, even if you don't have a living congregation meeting it, you should keep that. Well, why? No, we're trying to it. We're trying to keep but it. But do you know why you want to keep it? Um, because that's, because our cities are unsold, and that's the, that, that's, ah. the main, that, that, that's of course the main difference with American cities. Yes. So, for instance, we have street names, and they circle around the church, yes. and our main places where we gather, where we, our bridges where people stand and eat their uh, their hiring, well, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the cafe. So they. Uh, they are, it's an unsold uh, architecture yeah. of, of the city. And if you compare it to Americans, that it's, all, it's all straightforward. I, I, I've first, been, second, third street, 33rd street, it's boring for a Dutchman. I've we, been, we, we have names for streets. It's been shameful. We, I we come personalize see, our cities. You should not have let McDonald's in the country. <laughs> <laughs> the, the friends did a better job in that. But to come back to the languages one more time, because I thank you for this this. This, uh, this interpretation of the Bible story, because you're actually saying, well, the, the language perhaps for God was only a tool yeah. to stop the hubris of people yeah. uh, building one-sided titanic cities yes. uh, that actually lose uh, sight for the holistic environment and, um, and so forth. So, but then you do instrumentalize language. Yeah. Uh, whereas you also see a substantial interpretation of language in Christian tradition, for instance, uh, Luther translating Latin to, or Greek actually, to German, yeah. to come closer to the souls of people yes. and to bring uh, the message uh, in a more intimate way, because the mother tongue is of course more close yes. to the heart. Yes. But this of course is already typical Protestant uh, pious, 
uh, I think, because this, this is something that Luther thought and that yes. we still think, but uh, but many people don't think it anymore, eh? because yeah. they they say, well, why don't do any, don't, why don't you do everything in, for instance, research or media? Why don't you do it in English? And then but then you create a distance. Eh? Yes. Uh, but there are more translation moments in the history of. Uh, the Bible, yes, uh, the Septuaginta, the Greek, the yep. Latin, the yep. German. Yep. Uh, can you maybe reflect on this a little bit, and then the difference between yeah, so the importance of the language and also its uh, relatively ordinary function as simply a tool. Christianity, I don't know if it's the first, but it's absolutely it's absolutely the largest. Christianity is the first religion or the largest religion to work in translation. When Paul goes into the churches in the broader Roman world, they're not reading Hebrew. Islam, if I want to become a true Muslim, I must learn the Quran in Arabic. If I want to become a true Jew, I must learn the Torah in Hebrew. Part of Christianity's dynamic cultural power is that Paul takes a Greek translation of the Bible into Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and says, here is the word of God. Many Jews would have said, that's not the word of God. That's a translation. And right there you have the question, can you translate God? Can you translate the word of God? Especially when you take into account that several books of the Bible uh, emphasize the importance of language. That's right. In the beginning was the word. That's right. And when you look at even the fights today within Christianity, well, we were talking about the split in the Dutch Reformed Church in, in the 40s. In the, middle of the, in the middle of the Second World War, that's yeah. when the Dutch Reformed Church decide they're going to have a fight <laughs> over, you know, what did the, what did the snake, did, did the snake's mouth move? Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's a question. It's, that's, yeah. that's translation, but it's deeper than translation. You know, Plato was hugely skeptic about the written word. Should you write words down? What is that when we do that? What is that when we take this speech that we're doing mm -hmm. and we set it into oh. text? In and fact, that text can go. Yeah. In fact, Plato writes mainly about Socrates, and Socrates never wrote something down, and that's uh, something that you also see in the case of Jesus. Right. The only thing he did was write on the ground. <laughs> yeah, one time, yeah. One time. So this is the, the, there, there's also some skepticism about freezing down words. Right. right. Or it might not be the right word. But there are, so there's a big appreciation for the word. But at the same time, translation should be enabled continuously. So it should be a flow interpretation of right. the word. And now we're doing exactly the same thing with cameras. Having a conversation. Yes, and but we're sharing it with thousands of other people. Yeah, in English, Paul. I hope that people enjoyed it. Well, I want to thank you too. for coming to Leiden. Oh, it's my pleasure. We appreciate it. Well, so, this has been a true privilege and an honor. So thank you very much. Vond je dit ook een interessant gesprek? Abonneer je dan vooral op ons kanaal. Dan krijg je iedere keer als eerste nieuwe gesprekken. Bedankt voor het kijken en tot ziens.